We're going to finish Colossians today. We're going to do it in uh, 33 minutes. So are you ready? Chapter 4, verse 2. You know the theme of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, verses 15 through 20, succinct but one of the greatest proofs in the New Testament of the deity of Jesus and his Lordship. Chapter 2, the focus is on all of the alternative systems that the Colossian church was struggling with, Each one, he shows, they do not fit with the preeminence of Jesus. In chapter 3, which we just finished, the practical outworkings of the Lordship, both in terms of our internal life, motives, attitudes, matters of the heart, and then external, which we talked about last week. It affects our relationship with our spouse, with our children, and in the workplace. Now, chapter 4 is very short because the last half of the chapter He mentions a lot of names of individuals. Remember, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. He's in prison in Rome, and he writes four letters. This is one of those four letters. I'm just going to highlight those names, but I do want to finish the last two major admonitions, last two areas of instruction. One is about prayer, and one is about wisdom. And so prayer is addressed in verses 2 through Uh, verse uh, 4. Let me read that entire section. I want to go back and take it apart. I'm reading from the ESV translation, so it might be a little different in yours. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul says something in verse 2, which is a bit unusual in terms of prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer is not unusual. That's all over the New Testament. It's in the continuous present. So in other words, this should be our lifestyle, a lifestyle prayer. Now, let's just remind one another what prayer is. It is a time, perhaps, I don't know how you do it, and there is no set way to do it. Whatever your special time with the Lord is, whether it's in the morning, the evening, during the day, where you kind of are praying very focused and very specific about people, about issues. But prayer is also an ongoing conversation with God. One person has defined, I love this definition, prayer is a dialogue between two people who love one another. And that continual conversation with the Lord. The Bible encourages us to pray continually and constantly. And I think prayer, as we're talking to the Lord about everything in our lives, is, is, our, is part of our lifestyle. It's part of, as you grow in the Lord, you also grow in just your conversation. You're bringing him into everything. You're talking to him about everything. You might be you know, driving your car, and it's, it, it's in, at dusk, and you see the beautiful sunset, and you say, thank you, Lord, for creating that absolutely gorgeous sunset. No one else could have done that. You are such a God of beauty. I love what you create. You're praising him, but that's talking to him. Uh, it's a little more difficult. You walk out of here and slip on the ice and break your leg. Thank you, Lord, for my broken. That's not quite the same thing. But it's that attitude that God is in control, and I have no idea why this happened, but I'm going to trust you with this, Lord. So Paul is saying, continue in prayer. It's a continuous present, a lifestyle of prayer. But then he adds something which is unusual, being watchful. So up here on the, the board at First National Bank with all their profits have provided for us, 
It's Joe and his grace that provided it. Being watchful. Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, watch and pray. Watch and pray. That's, that's unusual. You usually don't see those two together. You see it with Jesus, and here you see it with Paul. So let's think about that a little bit. You're talking to the Lord, you're praying to the Lord, you're in this conversation, with, but being watchful at the same time. Wait a minute. What does that mean? Because... There are two key items that we're always to be alert, we're to be watchful, we're to be aware of. One is Satan, because if there's any individual being in the universe that does not want us to have an effective, vigorous, robust prayer life, it's Satan. He does not want you to be talking to the Lord. And I just put one reference, that's the whole armor of God uh, reference, but we war against, not flesh and bone, but against the, uh, the, the, the authorities and powers and so on in the high places, against Satan, against the devil. That's the words he uses in that passage. And so he's just saying, as he says to the disciples in Gethsemane, I'm going to go over here and pray. You guys watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. So you have those two things together, the other is carelessness, and I, that's really, I should have written that in Mark 14 too. But each one of these little verses just addresses that. What does that mean, carelessness? Well, it's almost an attitude, well, Lord, I can handle this one. I'll see you later. I'll get back to you. I'm okay with this one. And that's, that's a very careless, almost callous, and downright ridiculous perspective to take about things. So Paul is just saying, be alert, be aware, be on watch as you pray. So you could almost translate it something like this. As you are continually in a spirit of prayer, always be alert, be aware, be watchful, because there is a lot that can destroy and affect the prayer life. And then he adds something else. You could almost put it this way. Continue steadfastly in prayer with thanksgiving, being watchful. So you're saying, just a minute here. Continue, continue in prayer with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving should be a part, an integral part of my prayer life. Philippians 4, 6 is one of my favorite verses on that whole issue. Do not worry about anything but be in prayer about everything with thanksgiving. Two places, Paul adds, prayer with thanksgiving. Talk to me about that. Why is that so important? Why incorporate as a part of your prayer life thanksgiving? By the way, who is the object of your thanksgiving? The Lord is. But let's think about that. Why would he add this? I mean, he could have said, you know, be in a continual atmosphere and ambiance and, 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 and way of prayer in your life, being watchful, period. But he does, and he adds with thanksgiving. So I think it suggests that um, you should be looking back on all of the occasions and experiences where we found God faithful to us as we walk through life. Sometimes mm. there are 
we're under spiritual attack and God's mm. been faithful in that. And sometimes we've experienced very challenging things. Good. And always something God faithful. And it builds our faith. Good. And so that thankful spirit, which is in a way what he's really talking about, does deepen our faith and our confidence that God is in control. What's the very first thing that happens in justification? You're taken into God's family. Yeah, yeah. With that high privilege of being able to talk to God, your Abba, as, as we have the privilege of calling him now. Yeah, and I mean, it's just... Let's let's think of it from a different angle. Thankfulness feeds humility and dependence. Unthankfulness feeds pride and hubris. So I mean, just a thankful spirit is a. I was Peggy and I have a little devotional we read each morning, and this morning, uh, strike that it would have been yesterday morning. We were reading, and it was really interesting. Uh, it was really interesting because it was sort of thought-provoking. For the rest of the day, I thought about it. When you're a parent, your main objective is to move your children from dependence on you to a degree of independence. You don't want them dependent on you at 25 years of age, right? <laughs> I mean, you really don't. So, I mean, you want them to become independent. You know, where their strengths are, where their gifts are, and they go into school, and all those things. But, you know, it's exactly the opposite with God. We come to faith in Jesus Christ, and now he moves us to total dependence on him. So our objective as parents is, we really want to move our kids from, if you want to be real, what really I think is the right way to look at it, from dependence on us as parents to dependence on the Lord Jesus. But with a degree of independence. Because you, they, you know, I don't know about your kids, but my kids wanted to be independent. You know, it's just that I think adolescence, which American civilization developed, that developmental stage of life in the early 20th century. He said, notice something different about kids from about 13 to 18. So we're going to call it adolescence. I'm convinced it's a disease. I really am. It's a disease. And these kids are just constantly striving and kicking at the tracers to be independent. And then, you know, I, I'm being a little bit humorous there, but it's exactly the opposite with God. He wants us to grow in dependence on him. And so a spirit of thanksgiving help to cultivate that. Because if, as you said, um, uh, Andy, as you said, Andy, in a, in a, in a, in a real sense, what, what we want to be able to do is not say, I do this, I do this, I do this, but God is really the one. There are, there's no such thing with God as a, twin, a coincidence. If he is truly the Lord and he's truly the sovereign Lord, can you make this statement? I believe God's good, and I believe he always has my best interests at heart. Okay, one person agreed with me. The rest of you are not so sure. But I mean, that, just think about that for a minute. If what the thesis of this book of Colossians is the lordship and preeminence of Jesus Christ, if the lordship and preeminence of Jesus Christ is true, that means if I become his in his family, and I'm part, of, I'm part of the family of God, then he always, not most of the time, he always has my best interest at heart. And if you believe in his preeminence and lordship, and you believe he's good and has our best interest at heart, then a thankful spirit should result. That is very easy to say in a comfortable room, in a fairly cold, windy day, but 
tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, that'll be tested. Do you really believe God has your best interest at heart? You've probably seen this, but let me take this issue of prayer one further step if I could. And this is, this is the kind of thing that once you get this acrostic, you never forget it. Meaningful prayer is acts. It involves four dimensions. Adoration, confession, thankfulness, and then just to make the acrostic work, supplication, <laughs> which isn't always a typical word, but supplication where you're praying for, interceding for others, and bringing your request to the Lord, supplication would be like a request. So adoration is praise to the Lord for who he is. Like I mentioned, you see a beautiful sunset or something like that. Confession is that from the Greek, that means you're agreeing with God about your sin. You're agreeing. You're not fighting it. You're saying, yes, Lord, that's right. That's where I'm at. And then what Paul's talking about here, thanks, thankfulness. And then finally, supplication, request, what you're asking the Lord for. Peggy and I have used that throughout our, throughout our lives since we came to know the Lord. Because we were taught that very early in, in our, in our we, we were both discipled by a family, one way. And that just became very meaningful to us. This isn't unique with me, this is all over the place. Lots of publications have this. But that's an e-act, just you can easily remember that. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, or thankfulness, and supplication. And what Paul is incorporating in here into his instruction is that one. Because a thankful spirit cultivates humility and dependence. And that's what he's getting at. So you, you see it's kind of an unusual focus of prayer in this one verse, verse 2. But it's loaded with three key ideas. Prayer is a continuous, continuous present here, the verb in, in the original language. That's a continual practice of your life. There's a persistence about it. Second, it's being watchful, being alert, and be aware, because if there, there are things, a person to Satan, and the things of life, carelessness, that will prevent this from being a part of your life. And then thirdly, is the spirit of thanksgiving. And that's, uh, that, that's a powerful Short reminder of the centrality of prayer in our life. And I think one of the things that characterizes as we grow in the Lord over time is a, an ongoing um, practice of joyful praying. I mean, it's hard. I mean, it, when you sit down with your prayer list, or you sit down, however you that's hard because you, you are really focusing on that. And, you know, if you're tired at night, you, you just have, oh, you start to fall asleep and so on, and you feel guilty and you feel like you've let the Lord down. And that's, by the way, it's not supposed to, I had, a, I had a, this was back in Pennsylvania, but I had a, a gal that we were, Peggy and I were working with, and she said, I always fall asleep praying at night. And I looked at her and I said, what a beautiful way to fall asleep. What are you upset about? She's feeling guilty. She's feeling beat up about it. And I looked at her and I said, stop that. Don't feel guilty that you are falling asleep talking to the Lord. What, a, what, a, what an absolutely beautiful way to fall asleep. Just talking to the Lord. That's a great way to go to sleep. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm saying that because 
again, being watchful, Satan is going to take that feeling of guilt you have, I fall asleep when I'm praying, and you're going to run with it like football. Something Nebraska hasn't been doing very well, except this week where they crushed Maryland. They're very thankful they were running football. I don't know why he said all that, but he has a Nebraska shirt on. I thought I'd say it. All right. You got this verse? It's a great verse. And he just says something very specific. Pray for us. And the content of the prayer is that God may open to us a door for the word. Where is Paul when he's writing this? In prison. So when he says us, it's plural, so he undoubtedly means a number of the folks that are part of his cadre of disciples. It could involve Luke and Mark and Timothy and others perhaps. But for an open door, that's a metaphor you see throughout the missions and not, that God will provide an open door. But that's, it's, another way of saying that is an opportunity. An open door, an opportunity to share the word. And he says there are two purposes, declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, and that I may make it clear. And just think about that. That God will open doors, that I can declare the mystery of Christ, and make it clear. What a great prayer. And I've, I've, I've thought about that. I, uh, I preached a sermon this past Sunday on the woman at the well in John 4, and as I approached that and studied for it uh, in, in preparation, because it was kind of a last-minute thing my pastor asked me to do, but anyway, um, I thought, you know, when I study Jesus there, I see Jesus giving us a model of how to take an open door and, and slam it wide open and invite people to walk through it with you. Because that woman at the well, he, he tries to help her to see your physical concerns are not really what's important in life. Because he said, you know, what you, if you know that story, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, nobody would do what Jesus was doing, but he's in Samaritan territory. And he says to this lady, give me a drink. And she looks at him and says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. What, you don't do that. Nobody, in your, nobody treats me like that. And he said, well, you know, if you knew who was really asking you this, you would ask him for living water. And so she didn't quite get that, so he probes a little further. You see what he's trying to do? Get to move her from the temporal and physical to the spiritual and eternal. Getting her to think. Because, and she then, you know, she responds and they have a little dialogue. He says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. Go tell your husband. Bring him here. Why did he do that? He wants her to see the depths of her need for living water. She has five husbands. The man she's living with, she's cohabiting with. She's a very immoral woman. She comes out to see Jesus at noon. The ladies of the village always come out in the morning. That was the tradition. But she's ostracized. She's an outlier in that community. And I'm saying all that because when Paul says it, to make it clear. Jesus gives us a great model how to make the truth of the gospel clear. Make sure people really understand the physical is not all there is. The temporal and physical is only a part of reality. There's a spiritual and eternal and Jesus has revealed the nature of that. And then the need. What's the real need? I, you know, I said this in the sermon, but I, it struck me, and it, it really, Peggy and I both, in the last two years, my dad, Peggy's mom, and my mom went to be the Lord in that order. And so our parents are all with the Lord now. 
But I say all that because it's been fascinating, and I'm sure some of you have been through this. We're now completed with it. We just sold mom's house last Friday, closed on it. But what happens? Everything that defines the material aspects of their life are gone. They've either been sold or dispersed. And you you think about that as, wow, we spend so much time, and there's nothing wrong with the physical. The Bible is very clear. The physical blessings of the Lord are real. Enjoy them. He's stewarding them to you. But, you know, don't hold on to them real tightly because they're not going to last. And we just, we, we've thought about that with our parents. Their homes are gone. You know, every material aspect of their lives are gone. It's either been sold or it's dispersed among the kids. Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, within three generations, nobody will even remember your name. <laughs> now that's, you know, that's maybe hyperbole, but in a face, isn't that true? So the physical and temporal, that's not all there is. And Jesus just masterfully gets this woman to understand that. And by the time the conversation is over, she's come to believe that he is the Messiah. And she runs into the village and brings everybody out. And Jesus, they said, please stay with me. He stays there two days in a Samaritan village. And many, many, many believed. I mean, I had that's just an extraordinary story. But that's what Paul, that we may make it clear. So I've asked, I'm going to ask you, the same thing I asked the congregation on Sunday. Ask the Lord between now and December the 31st to bring someone across your path that you can talk with about the eternal and the spiritual and that only Jesus meets the real need you have in life. I kind of think God might answer that prayer. I'm pretty sure he will, but that he would do that, that you'd make it clear. I love Jesus' strategy. Help people, move people from the physical and the temporal to the spiritual and eternal. Think about that. And what is the area of your need? Jesus can meet that. Gentlemen, when we think about whosoever will may come, you know, the most unlikely candidate for coming to Christ might be person that we encounter without any previous thought. Absolutely. Ever Absolutely. Christ Absolutely. You never, ever, ever know. Yesterday, I was, I go to the fitness center every morning, I was on the treadmill, and a young guy comes up the treadmill, and he says, hi, Dr. Eckman. I look at, <laughs> I don't know who he is. And he starts telling me he's uh, uh, in a church here in town, and uh, two of the people in her church are graduates of the school I used to lead. He knows my daughter. And all of us, it just reminded me, you never, ever know the next human being, what the background is. Now, that was very positive because there were lots of connections. But a lot of other times, it's, it's not. Because I don't know about you, basically, in the heart of my heart, I don't like people. <laughs> Do you? I mean, I really don't. I don't like people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that, my, I, you know, I'm... I'm an academic person, and only ministry has been academic. And what I would really prefer to do is lock myself in my ivory tower and just study all the time, which, I mean, I don't do that, but that's what I would love to do. I study a lot, but it's mostly to be with people and teach. But I say all that because you really, you really always, always, always have to be ready, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, to give an account of the hope that's within you. 
because you never know who the next person on the treadmill is. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden they're going to say, hi, doctor. All of a sudden I'm talking to this guy. It was amazing. I've never seen the guy, and I've, I didn't ever meet him, but he knew people. Let's look at verse 3 or verse 5 then. The second major item before we close the book of Colossians. Walk in wisdom. Now that is not an idea that isn't brought up throughout the rest of the Bible. It's all over the Bible <laughs> to walk in wisdom. The book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes is all about that. But walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's how the ESV translates that term. What does he mean, outsiders? What does he mean by that? Non-believer. Non-believer. People outside the faith. People that, that don't know Jesus as their Savior, to, to put it the way we would put it. So walk in wisdom. Okay, what does that look like to walk in wisdom? It has, it has three key characteristics. Making the best use of time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, walk in wisdom. What does wisdom look like with people who are outside the faith? Walk in wisdom by hitting them over the head with your Bible. Right? Walk in wisdom by telling them, you're going to hell. Walk in wisdom. God is going to judge you for your horrible actions. Shape up. Now, you know, I hope none of you have ever used that tactic. But so Paul, it's really, it's really quite amazing how he says this. Making the best use of time. Now that that could be understood as an admonition for time management, which is a good stewardship issue. Several places in the Bible talk about that. I'm not sure that's what he means there. Make the best use of the time, meaning the opportunity that God has provided for you. He's brought somebody across your path in this moment. Erwin McManus, one of the books, talks about the divine appointments each one of us has during the day. The divine appointments, meaning somebody he's brought across your path. And you, you know, you like what happened to me yesterday. You, somebody, he brings somebody across your path. You have no idea who it is, and all of a sudden you're finding yourself in a conversation where Jesus Christ is a part of it. So that's what he's saying. Wisdom to outside, toward outsiders is... Take advantage of the opportunity that's presented. Make the best use of that time. Well, how do I do that? By what comes out of your mouth. The words that you say. Let your speech be gracious. Literally, in the the original language, speech that's full of grace. What does that mean? Toward outsiders, walking risen toward outsiders, I want to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given me. I'm making the best use of that time. By speech that's full of grace. What does that mean? I think it's showing God's love in ways that that circumstance presents itself and convey that you really do care about that person as an individual. Okay, that's good. A genuineness about your care and concern for that person, whatever it is. Anything else? Isn't the opposite of grace judgment? Yeah, yeah, I think so. 
Are you going to convey a spirit that is judgmental and critical? Or a spirit that is gracious and compassionate? I'm always, I, whenever I think about that, I always think of John 3.17. Not John 3.16, but John 3.17. I did not come into the world to condemn the world. It already stands condemned. But to offer salvation to the world. Is your message and my message to the unsaved world a message of condemnation? It really isn't. That's not our message. Our message is, I have another way for you to live your life. Are you interested? There is another way for you to live. And so to show care and compassion, sensitivity, a judgmental critical, I'll tell you, I, I'm sure you have seen this, a judgmental critical spirit almost always turns people off. They do not want to listen to them. They, they'll just turn away. They may be very polite, but they're going to turn away. So Paul is, is tremendous insight here. How, how you talk with people when it comes to spiritual things, well, really, indeed, anything, but how you talk with people in terms of spiritual things, be gracious, overflowing, bubbling over with grace. In our church, we talk a lot about building a culture of grace. That's what we want to build our church, a culture of grace. Because the world is a mess. And when people come to our church, and that's true of any church, would be true, they bring all their junk and baggage with them. So is your message going to be, uh, okay, you measure up, you measure up, you measure up, or get out of here? Well, you'll, all of a sudden you're bound to church of two people, you and your wife. Nobody else will come. Because the message of the gospel is one of grace. Jesus is accepting and he sets no boundaries to the acceptance. He wants everybody to hear the message. And so he's saying, and then he adds, he adds something else with it. Always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, when you read salt, you think of what you put on a thick Omaha steak. That's what you think of. Something that, and in a way, that might fit because... Um, but only the aristocracy and the very wealthy in the Roman Empire were able to afford that. The typical ordinary person could not afford salt. It was very expensive. And if they did, they would use the salt not as something to season their food, but to season and preserve their food. That's how you preserve things in the ancient world. You packed it with salt. They didn't realize that, but it's killing all the bacteria. So uh, anyway, my, my point is that's probably how Paul is using this. A pure, edifying, preserving speech. It's not condemning. It's pure. It's edifying. It's building up. It's preserving. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. I had to look up the verse. I couldn't remember it. But it's that kind of, so it's, it's like something we have to think about what we're going to say. You know, it's amazing how much the Bible talks about what we say about our words, about our speech. Because you can say something to someone that they'll never forget it, positively or negatively. Chad, you, you came to the Lord because you heard a statement that caused you to think about eternal spiritual things. 
This is a major issue of my life. What am I going to do with this? And so that's what Paul is saying. I walk in wisdom with outsiders. First of all, when God gives you an opportunity, take advantage of it. Be full of grace, overflowing with grace, seasoned with salt. Pure, preserving, edifying. You know, I could hit Joel, I could hit Joel on the side of the arm, and it hurt. I think I could make it hurt, but it would hurt. You know, and but in five years, he probably will forget that. Whatever pain I could possibly inflict on him will be long gone. But suppose right here in this group, I would humiliate him and embarrass him and shred him. How long would he remember that? Probably the rest of his life. And so that's why the Bible has so much to say about our speech, about the words, about our language. So Paul is saying very, very clearly here to us, take advantage of the opportunities God gives you. Always have your speech characterized by gracious speech, full, overabundant, pouring over the sides of grace. And season with salt, it's edifying. It's not shredding and cutting down. And the gospel is like that. We are not here to condemn people. They stand condemned. We're here to give them another way to live their lives. And we have to help them see. Sometimes, that's what, again, I think what Jesus did here in John 4, is help them to understand the real need in life. It's not physical and temporal. It's something that only God can solve for them. That's how I came to know Christ in 1972. I was facing something I couldn't solve. All right. Your assignment for next week, in your own words, put verse 3, uh, or rather 5 and 6 in your own words. Five and six only. Verse 5 and 6, just 5 and 6. How do I approach people outside the faith? What does walking in wisdom look like? I really want to finish Colossians. I have three minutes. Can I do that? Isn't this terrible? I'm imposing my priorities on this. Verse 7 through the end is Paul just lists name after name after name of individuals. Uh, Tychicus is the first one. He's he's the guy who, who took this letter from Rome to Colossae. He's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. And I just like how he talks about him. He's my beloved brother, faithful minister, servant in the Lord. What a great way to characterize somebody. And then he brings up in verse 9, Onesimus. Do any of you know who he is? He's a slave. There's a book written about him. It's called Philemon. And Philemon is the master of Onesimus. And Onesimus, is a, he's our faithful and beloved brother. Now, I don't know, but you look at that, our faithful and beloved brother. He's talking about a slave. And this is Onesimus, the guy who, who Philemon, who is his master and owner, Onesimus has run away. And Philemon is instructed by Paul, welcome him back as your brother in Christ. I tell, huh? Yeah, it's just incredible. Aristarchus, uh, we only know a little bit about him, but in the middle of verse 10 is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Why do you know Mark, even if you don't know who Mark is? Mark did go on some of the second... Uh, uh, missionary journey. Missionary. Yeah. What else did Mark do? 
He wrote the book of Mark. This is Mark, the author of the gospel, the first gospel that was written. Okay? Um, yeah, they made up. They did. <laughs> Down in verse 14, there's Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, the author of the Gospel of Luke, the author of the book of Acts. And then Demas, who's at the end of verse 14, Demas will leave Paul. He, he will separate from Paul. And Paul will lament that in, 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 uh, in second, I think it's 2 Timothy. Uh, he, will, he will just depart from Paul. They will separate over a theological issue. And so at the end of the book, um, you just see verse 18, it's really a letter. I write, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And that is um, something that is unusual. I hope I can explain this quickly, but it's not difficult. Every one of Paul's letters he dictates to an amanuensis, which is a fancy word for secretary. They just take it down as writing. But several times in Paul's letters, she says, at the end, I'm going to write this in my own hand. That's sometimes, I don't think this in any way solves it, but some people say well, that was his thorn in the flesh. He had an eyesight problem. I'm not sure this seals it at all, but I thought I'd just throw it in. Some people think that. I'm not convinced that's it. But it is not unusual in the ancient world for a letter to be dictated, and then you sign the letter at the end with your name. Okay. Well, we don't get to say this very often at this class, but we're done with the book of Colossians. <laughs> Any questions? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these men, for the, the encouraging and edifying testimonies we shared at the beginning. And uh, it's been a joy to get to know a lot of these guys, for those many who aren't here, because of the holiday, I suppose. I pray you'll be with them, too. For all the guys here and those who aren't, uh, may Thanksgiving tomorrow be a real special day. Lord, I'm very thankful we still live in a country where we still have a national day of thanksgiving. And I pray that it will be a day throughout this nation, but especially in our homes, where we take just a few moments and really express our thankfulness to you. We owe everything to you, Lord. You are our, you are our master, you are king, you are Lord, you're the preeminent Lord of the universe. And it's just amazing that you care about us such that you'd send your son to die for us, to be resurrected, to be ascended, to now be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's how precious we are to you. May we, may we cultivate an active prayer life, as Paul talked about. May we learn how to walk in wisdom with those who are outside the faith. We represent you. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that to the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. See you next week. <laughs>